Got some more pages of notes to get through this morning. Can't forget those. I'm going to absolutely butcher a quote um, because I don't know it properly. Um, But uh, the famous um, preacher in the um, 19th century, Spurgeon, had a quote that went along the the lines of of this, talking about preachers who like to talk a lot. Um, They sacrifice the many with their lots of words to save themselves the one because they want to get everything out there. They said, the good preacher is someone who sacrifices himself to save the many from the words that they're going to speak. So uh, given the length of our sermon this morning, I'm going to do a bit of culling, sorry, our service this morning, and do a bit of culling as I go through what I had prepared to say. Um, If you want a whole manuscript of what I was going to say, please feel free to email me um, uh, so that we can, if you want to have things a bit more explained to you. There we go. For those of you who don't know me, my name's Chris. I'm one of the ministers here. Um, And uh, what a weekend we had last week. Who had a fantastic Easter? I had an absolutely brilliant Easter. Um, It was just such a joyous occasion here. Um, I haven't stopped going on about how much I just loved the worship music last week. It was just fantastic. Well done, team. Um, You know, Easter eggs, ice cream sundaes, all of that stuff was just so fantastic. And um, to just celebrate what God has done for us, isn't God amazing? You know, that he would die, that he would bear all of our sins um, because he loves us so much. And then uh, defeating death, defeating sin, rise again and offer us eternal life. Uh, what an amazingly precious gift that it is. And, you know, we, we focus on it in that massive way once a year, but it really is the heart of what we're doing every Sunday. We come to remind ourselves exactly what Jesus has done for us and that we live in light of that freedom and that grace that the cross and the resurrection brings us. Um, and that we together as a church are a community who gather around the cross, who gather around this grace and this freedom uh, that Jesus has won for us. And, and we're trying to live together in light of that. We're trying to live as best we can, following what Jesus has taught, showing in our lives and in our relationships and in the words we speak that our sins are forgiven, that we have freedom, that God has given us a purpose, and that there is more to life than what we see now. And we're called to step into that space, aren't we? To build something of God's kingdom where we are, however we can. Um, And uh, what we've been looking at in the build up to Easter is a series that we've called Kingdom Culture. As a community of people, we naturally have a culture to us. All communities, all groups of people have a culture to them. But the Bible says that the culture of God's kingdom should have specific aspects to it. And we've been looking at certain things uh, like that. We've seen one that um, a kingdom culture celebrates. We celebrate the good things that God's doing in our lives. And what an awesome opportunity that was this morning to celebrate the youth and and the amazing work that God was doing in their lives at Easter camp, to celebrate the growth that God's bringing um, with new members at GPC. Wasn't that just fantastic? Um, We saw that um, kingdom culture worships. Worships with all that we have, not just in song, but just with our whole lives and everything that we do. Kingdom culture grows together in intimacy and relationship. And kingdom culture uses our words to bless, not to curse. And uh, today we are looking at conflict. The culture of the kingdom is one that faces conflict well. This could be quite a hard topic for you. As soon as I said that, maybe you flinched a little bit. A shot of adrenaline go through your body as you think, oh, there's a conflict in my life. There's something that I'm 
going through. I'm, I'm in conflict at the moment. I've had a number of conflicts in my life. Um, I remember showing up to a family Christmas once, and none of my family spoke to me. And, and, and I was sort of going around from my uncles and aunties going, hi, how's it, how's it going? And, and they just literally just blanked me. A couple of them were, were nicer and, you know, spoke to me. And um, I couldn't figure it out. And, you know, I was like, oh, this is a bummer of a party. See you later. I was, you know, I was only like 19 or something, so it didn't bother me too much. Um, and I just left. Um, but I'd done something that they didn't like, and so they were giving me the cold shoulder. Um, one of my, my friends didn't like um, a friendship that I, was, I had, and so ended up stopping me from being a groomsman in his wedding because we, we couldn't agree over things. Um, <laughs> Becky, whoever and I get into a bit of a conflict, which is only very, very rarely, once every four or five years, um, I'm up for a fight. You know, I get in and I, you know, my hands, hands are ready and, um, and, no, 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 not like, okay, whoa, no, not like, put <laughs> hands down. They're not ready like that. The gloves are off is what I'm saying. It's not, ah. <laughs> oh. So I sit down and maybe, metaphorically, the gloves come off for me, and, and I'm ready to kind of go at it. Just to be clear, there's no physical abuse, there's no fighting. If you're listening on the recording of this later, this is true, everyone will confirm it to you. Um, no, I, I get ready to like get in there and get amongst it, and um, she's just a lot smarter than me, and so she usually wins. Um, but on the off chance that I am, like, I've got a valid point, she just says, oh, yeah, you're right. I don't know what to do. I'm like, but I'm, I'm, I'm just, ah, let's I go at it, you know? So we, we have, have conflict every now and then. I built myself, I was on a, a, um, a committee, and one of the, the guys on the committee was just so forthright and knew what he wanted and would go for it. And, and I was just a new priest back then, a new minister, and I, um, I, d- I didn't like conflict at all. I still don't. Um, and uh, I had this nickname for him because he dressed badly. His name was Bad Dresser. And so um, he wore like flamboyant yellow clergy shirts. That was just no one should ever do. Um, and so I'd psyched myself up for this. And I had all these arguments. I had, you know, Beck helped me with my arguments and what I was going to say. Rung him up. And he was so not used to people confronting him and pushing back on him that he just sort of rolled over and was like, oh, yeah, okay, sure, whatever. And I was like, I've got all this other stuff to say. But, like, you know, and so when I got into this conflict, it was with someone who had not actually been used to other people pushing back on him and so, or actually asserting their opinion. And so it was actually a lot easier to manage that conflict than I had originally thought it was going to be. But it, whew, it took some emotional energy out of me. So perhaps when I say conflict, you, that, that makes you feel a little bit awkward, a bit uncomfortable um, at, you know, at the moment. But um, maybe you're in the midst of conflict now. Maybe it's, um, it is a sore spot for you. It's something in your family, at work, um, past conflicts that you've um, been going through. And as, as I was writing this sermon, and um, you know, I didn't have any one person in mind as I've been writing this. I, I thought of the GPC community, and I thought of us in the sense of we want to be a gospel community. We want to be a community that reflects the kingdom of God. And, um, and so as I thought about this, uh, this sermon, I thought, man, like, we have a real opportunity as we move forward into the future to grow together, 
Because when we deal with conflict well, it is an opportunity to grow and to um, build and to take new opportunities that might be presenting ourselves. Um, and so, look, can I just encourage you um, to bear with me as, as we go through this? Can I quickly pray, though, um, as we get going? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have made us relational beings um, and with all the blessings um, that that brings. But it also brings challenges, Lord. And so as we examine your word this morning, uh, we want to reflect upon our own lives and how our own actions and strategies for managing conflict match up against your word. And so, Lord, we ask that you would be gentle to those of us who need your gentle spirit to encourage us and shape us. And for those of us who uh, maybe need a bit of a, a stronger nudge, Lord, be gracious to us in your discipline. So, God, we pray for all of this for your glory's sake. In the name of our risen and living Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so Scripture is just absolutely rich with conflict. Um, uh, it's rich with disagreement, uh, and um, it kind of has to be. Because in order to show the greatness of God's reconciliatory love, of God's peace, of uh, God's restoration and reconciliation, it does need to emphasize that there is this disagreement, there is this conflict that finds its way through the course of humanity. And um, of course, we, we think right at the beginning of the Bible, isn't it? There's Adam and Eve, and they rebel against God. They're in conflict with God. And then when God calls them out, they're in conflict with one another about whose fault it was that they'd taken the fruit. Adam says it was Eve who you gave me, God. She says it was the snake, God, who you put there. You know, there's all this conflict going on. Um, Cain and Abel is, you know, immediately um, just deadly conflict. Uh, Cain kills Abel. And then throughout Genesis, again, there's just conflict after conflict. There's deception. Um, there's violence. Uh, in the wilderness, when God calls the people of Israel out of Egypt, um, there's constant breakdown in the relationship there. King David and, or King Saul, and when David is, um, uh, is uh, you know, coming up under him, there's conflict there as well. When David is king, he has an affair with Bathsheba, and he's confronted by Nathan, the prophet, who has the courage to step forward and challenge the king over what the king has done. And David himself, just um, in the Psalms, reflects on the conflict that he's constantly going through. Listen to this from Psalm 109. Be not silent, O God, of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate. They attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. But they reward me evil for good, and they reward me hatred for my love. David was a man who knew deeply what it meant to be in conflict with others and have people conflict, uh, constantly you know, working against him. And of course, in the course of the Gospels, uh, Jesus is com constantly coming up against conflict with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the other religious leaders and, and the people of the law. Uh, and when the church explodes at Pentecost, we see that there's never been a stage in the church's life where there's not been conflict. 
Um, Paul had to stand up to Peter in front of the whole congregation at Antioch. Paul and Barnabas disagree over whether they should take Mark with them on their missionary journey because uh, he abandoned them the other time. The church in conflict, is, uh, Corinth is in conflict about who they should follow as an apostle. Um, I love that start of the letter, Paul writes, I've heard from Chloe's people that you're, you know, you're, there's fighting. And he, you know, I can, that these letters in the ancient church were read out. And so I can imagine them kind of going, we've heard from Chloe's people. And then everyone just kind of looks at Chloe and just sort of shakes their head. And it's like, Chloe, darn Chloe. Jews and Gentiles fight over what they should and they shouldn't eat. And so look, despite the fact that Jesus came and died and had resurrected and offered us new life in the kingdom here and now, the history of disagreements and conflicts is still a part of God's people, is still a part of our lives as fallen and sinful human beings, uh, especially, uh, well, no, I won't say that. Anyway, yeah, it's still a part of our lives. But the Bible isn't quiet, isn't silent about how we deal with conflict, right? Um, obviously, we, we heard that reading there, um, but there are other key passages as well, and I'm going to quickly just just go through this. Um, in uh, Matthew 5, 25, Jesus tells us um, that we need to deal um, quickly with conflict, with those who we're in conflict with. Um, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 6, says we shouldn't make it public. We shouldn't go to the courts, take other Christian believers to the courts. The church wastes so much money on legal battles that if people were simply biblical in their understanding of conflict, would not happen, right? Um, and I'll leave, it, I'll leave it at that. Um, Jesus is clear um, that the kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Uh, in uh, Mark chapter 3 and Luke chapter 12, he says, um, he makes that very clear. He says, we're not meant to shy away from disagreements. As I said in, in Galatians chapter 2, Paul stands up in front of the whole church and challenges St. Peter um, as to his behavior that is causing the Gentile Christians to feel second rate, right? Uh, so there's a time when he needs to stand up and publicly confront Peter. We see Jesus asks his disciples um, what they're talking about when they're arguing over who's the greatest in the kingdom. He doesn't shy away from setting them straight, does he? And he says, hey, what were you talking about? And they say to him, uh, you know, they kind of mumble, and he's like, you're talking about who's greatest in the kingdom. And he, he sets them straight. He confronts them about what the, their misguided beliefs and what they, they think is important in order to set them straight and rectify them onto the path of truth. We need discernment, the Bible says, about what is worth confronting someone over and what is not, all right? Uh, my small group's uh, going through Romans, and we went through Romans 14 the other day, and um, Paul has this dialogue about what we should or shouldn't dig our heels in about over what's right to eat, what's right to drink, what days are holy, what days aren't holy. Um, and he, he frames it in the sense of a, a mature and a weaker um, believer, you know, some people honor God by doing certain things or having certain practices, um, and that's great. But they're not necessarily mandatory or not, um, yeah, not, you know, they're not commanded by Scripture as things that are essential for salvation. And, and so he's basically saying, you know, don't get into arguments over things that don't matter. He says, don't for the sake of food destroy the work of God in Romans 14 verse 20. 
He asks uh, Paul in Philippians, says, we are to live peaceably with one another. In Philippians 2, chapter 1, I'm just going to read this one for you. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. We are to live peaceably. The ultimate end of any conflict is peace and unity and to be back in equal relationship with one another. It's not to win an argument. It's not to take the gloves off, as I metaphorically, as I said before. Uh, it's not to prove that someone else is wrong and that you are better than them. It's to grow the church, the body of Christ, so that the church is better off for having had this disagreement in the first place. That is why we welcome conflict. And so look, uh, Jesus gives us instructions on how to manage conflict in Matthew chapter 18. And um, I want to have a quick look at that and then offer us uh, perhaps the key to um, growing together through conflict. Um, Matthew chapter 18 is, is a fascinating chapter. It starts off, let's put this in context here, it starts off by the disciples arguing, as I mentioned, who is the greatest? Who's the greatest in the kingdom? Um, and he says, whoever receives a child, he, you know, there's children there, and he says, whoever receives a child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble would be better than them not to um, have lived at all. So the, the, the least is the greatest in the kingdom. He says temptation's going to come, but then he says the parable of the lost sheep. It's God's desire that those who are in conflict, those who are outside of the kingdom, those who step away from God, that God would seek them and have them brought back in. And this is really important because it sets the scene for dealing with conflict. Firstly, it says it's not to be great. That's not the, that's not the point of the Christian life. Secondly, temptations are going to come to sin, but God's desire is for those who do sin to be brought back into the kingdom, brought back into the community. Um, and then he goes through the instructions about what, how we deal with conflict and follows it up with the parable of the unforgiving servant, right? And he says, if you, you've been forgiven all of this by God, but if you fail to forgive others in light of all that God has done for you, basically he says, boy, you watch out, right? And so that's the frame, what, what the, um, the instructions are framed within. This need for the great forgiveness in the light of what we've been forgiven, but also that the goal of, um, is to restore brothers and sisters back into relationship with God, with the church as well. And so verse 15, if your brother or sister sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained back a brother. But if he, yeah, So that's the first part. So go and talk to the person. It's, it seems quite obvious, doesn't it? Um, talk to someone who might offend you or who you think, and this is obviously in the context of dealing with a sin, someone is sinning, but it's, it's broad guidelines for also general conflict. Tell someone that you're conflicted with them. Tell someone that they've offended you or hurt you. They may not know. Tell someone that they're doing something that you think is sinful or that is uh, abusing the relationship. But go alone. See, right at the start, Jesus is saying, don't draw other people in necessarily. And the goal is to win them back. They can be restored to uh, a, 
a faithful path of discipleship. This also means, uh, and, and this is a really important one, is don't get drawn into other people's conflicts. Right? Someone comes to you and says, oh, such and such, they did such and such. You shouldn't go, yes, such and such, let's, let's get angry together. Your first response should be, have you gone and spoken to them? Well, no. Well, why not? Oh, who knows what the answer might be. But either it, it's not as big as they're making it out to be and they're just wanting to have a bit of a moan, um, or maybe they're a little bit afraid. And go, look, hey, I'll, I'll come and help you deal with this. Let's, let's do this. But don't sit here and separate me into your conflict without having gone to try and deal with that first. The focus, though, should be on winning someone back. The second thing uh, that Jesus says is, if the person doesn't listen to you, take someone else to witness the conversation. And that doesn't need to be someone who's a witness to what they've done. It just needs to be someone who's there to see, the peop- uh, to see you making an attempt to reconcile with this person. Right? Uh, Deuteronomy 19, um, 15 talks about the need for two or three witnesses. And so Jesus is following this principle. If you're trying to reconcile with someone, if you're in conflict with someone, ensure that they're, and they're not going to listen to you and be restored to that relationship, go with someone else. And be prepared for this person to arbitrate and say, put it back on you and go, well, hold on a second, they're making a relevant point. See, there's the opportunity for someone else to look objectively in and speak life into this situation. They'll be able to confirm non-repentance and literally be a witness of your efforts to reconcile. But they may also suggest that a lot of their responsibility falls on you as well. So the third one, the third step in this, and I, like, as I said, I'm, I understand I'm racing through these. We could explain all these a bit long, uh, in more in depth. Um, point three, sorry. If, if, um, if they still don't listen, so, find my verses down here. If they do not listen, this is verse 16, take one or two others along with you so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Point three, if they refuse to listen to them, tell it to the church. And so uh, this is obviously a matter for um, within the church uh, that Jesus is talking about here. Um, He's not saying, like some churches have done, to get people up the front of church and to just list out all their sins and everything that's wrong and then let the church have a vote on what should be done to this person or anything like that. That's not how we deal with conflict. It's not how we're suggesting that we do either. Um, But it's actually get some godly good people involved. Get some mature Christians. Get the minister or get some mature elders involved to help arbitrate and to, um, to really speak, um, not that you might not have been, but to speak gospel truth into there, to bring the word of God into the situation and to deal with this conflict in a godly way. And the f- fourth point, if they still refuse to listen to you, if he, in the second half of verse 17, if they refuse to listen even to the church, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Basically, uh, he's saying, treat them as an unbeliever. 
And again, this is obviously within the context of the church, and this is obviously when there has been a disagreement and a conflict with sin that has become so great that it affects your relationship and their relationship as well to God, that there's unrepentant sin in their lives that they're not confessing over. What would this look like? Well, we've just made people members of our church this morning and all the privileges that that has in terms of uh, being able to make decisions, being involved in leading ministries, being involved uh, in voting and making critical decisions for the direction um, of the church. And so, so maybe it's some areas like that that it would be in extreme situations like that. Confessing disciples... No. The goal, though, always, in terms of treating someone like an unbeliever, when we, treat, when we think of people, those who aren't Christians, we want them to be reconciled to God, don't we? And so there's the sense that when we're treating them like an unbeliever, it's not that we shun them and we don't uh, you know, make them you know, the whipping boy of the church or that they're our outcast or, or whatever it might be, but there should be a greater desire to see them reconciled a greater desire to want to speak the gospel to them, a greater desire to want to show them compassion and the urgency that they need to repent and to receive the forgiveness of Jesus. They are not to receive the same openness in the inner fellowship of the community, but they are to receive the same beckoning and calling to come to Jesus and believe and have their, uh, and be reconciled to not only the believers in the church, but also to God as well. I could flesh this out a lot more. I'm not going to. One tool that I think, are we all sort of clear on that? It's fairly straight self-explanatory. Everyone's sort of looking for me. And you're you're tracking with me so far? All right. All right. Last part. Here we go. The best part, best way to understand, I think, and manage conflict and to figure out how um, how we do in conflict is to understand uh, our own tendencies with regards to conflict. What are our own strategies in conflict? Um, Steph, could you change the, the slide there? Um, there's essentially five styles um, of uh, conflict management that counsellors um, uh, agree on and, um, and think that there is. Um, and I found this, this kind of cute little thing um, that says, uh, they've put them in these different categories. There's the mouse, the bee, the owl, the turtle, and the lion. Right, the lion's probably fairly obvious, um, rushes on and wants to get conflict. Um, they're not personal. They're about the issues. Let's deal with it. I'm right. Here we go. Arr, right in there. Like let's get at it. Um, that metaphorically again, gloves off. Right. Um, the turtle conflict. What conflict? Right. They try and avoid conflict at every turn, uh, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, Some conflicts aren't worth the energy, but when you avoid all conflicts, you become incredibly conflicted, right? The owl is the wise decision maker. You want to get everyone's ideas on the table. You're interested in finding the answer that satisfies everyone's need and demonstrates a lot of teamwork. However, this type of thinking requires the same investment from everyone in the conflict 
and the ability to take a lot of time to come to a decision that not everyone in the conflict might be willing to make. Elders, obviously the, the wise one um, and the one that we want to probably be uh, most emulating in our lives, but it takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of listening. It takes a lot of understanding. There's the B. The B is busy um, and they want to get things done and they don't mind if it's just a temporary fix to keep things happy. They're willing to... to uh, um, What's the word I'm looking for? Compromise. Compromise so that no one is happy, but they come to a decision in the end. You're willing to meet the other person in the middle. What's important is to consider when a conflict is a short-term solution may not accomplish goals for either person, especially if neither of you are getting what you really want. Right? We can aim for the short-term compromise so that no one gets what they want. And there's the mouse. They put their needs, they often put the needs of others before their own. Right? This allows you to be strong in building relationships and you're generally well liked by others, but you never get what you want. You always feel like you're being walked over and like no one appreciates you. Sometimes the mouse needs to check in with their own needs and be mindful that they can feel like they are valued and needed as well. Why do I point these out? Because when we come into conflict, if we know how we deal with conflict, it lets us be self-reflective in knowing, um, knowing how other people may perceive us. If we are aware of how other people are, it, may, it helps us understand how we can approach them and be more understanding. We need to be self-aware of our own attitudes towards conflict. But as we finish, we won't truly be able to understand and face conflict until we realize that we have been reconciled by God, that we have been, have been in conflict with God. Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. For in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We won't truly be able to address conflict without feeling insecure until we realize that our sins have been forgiven and the ultimate conflict of this life has already been dealt with by Christ on the cross. You won't truly be able to forgive others unless you understand the great debt you have already been forgiven by Christ. It is only in knowing the one whom you have wronged and injured eternally and that he has forgiven you that you can face conflict, regardless of what the outcome might be. Knowing that you are just as much a sinner in need of grace as those who are in conflict with you are as well. God has reconciled you for relationship with him. He has made a way and paid the price. 
is a price to be paid. And that is not to not and that is not to let sin reign. But it is the discomfort of confronting it. It is what it costs you to show mercy. Discomfort. But you will freely give this mercy when you know the abundant mercy that God has already given you in Christ. We must understand that conflict is about relationship and restoration of relationship. We won't truly grasp the grace and mercy like nature, sorry, like the Christian is called to in moments of conflict unless you realize that Jesus Christ gave up his relationship with the Father on the cross, taking your rebellion and your conflict onto himself so that you can truly be free of charge and in relationship with God and free to be in relationship with everyone else. So can we pray? Oh Lord, there's been um, so much in this this morning, and God, I've just raced through this. But God, I just pray that you would speak to each of our hearts. We're all people who have experienced conflict. We're all people who have ways of dealing with discomfort and conflict in relationships. God, help us to be reflective. Help us to know that you are always with us. Help us to know that we are always forgiven when we come and turn to you. Help us to look at others as those who also need forgiveness, those who are also fall short of your glory, those who are just like us, needing to be at the foot of the cross. So God, give us hope. Give us the tools that we need to live as your people and to take the opportunities that conflicts presents to us to grow in grace, to grow in love, and to live for your glory. Amen.